Welcome to episode 31 of MADE, the podcast about purpose-driven design, making, and manufacturing. Today we're going to talk all news. Let's continue the conversation. Welcome back everyone to MADE. With me as always is Ray Peña. How you doing? Claudia Barrigan. Hello. And I am Jose Valcarcel. Welcome back, guys. How have yeah, you guys not, been? Not bad on you. I'm good. I'm good. It's, uh, it's always awkward because we've been talking for like 30 minutes, but we just turned on the microphone, so we have to yeah, yeah. act we haven't been talking for 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah. It's acting. That's what we call it, acting. Yeah. That's why, that's why the, the beginning intro part is always a little awkward, if anybody's wondering. Because we sort of just stopped talking to start talking again. Um, but we've been away for a couple of weeks. You know, things have been a little busy. Yes. Things busy at the shop. Very busy. Busy, uh, you know. It, it's amazing how uh, everybody waits for the last minute and then they got to have it right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Claudia's always obviously been busy. We were just at a meeting tonight before we started recording this, actually. Yeah. It was actually a really nice weather, too, so... It- Got us to be outside. Yeah, yeah, cool. Well, um, uh, I have a couple of announcements at the top here. Uh, so we're gonna be at Nova Maker Fair, uh, and I'm trying to remember what date that is. Claudia's gonna look it up. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a couple of Maker Fairs that we're gonna be at. Um, the first one is here, it's called Nova, which is in Northern Virginia, and then the next one that we've been accepted to that we're trying to figure out how, how many of us are going to go or how we're going to go is uh, the Miami Maker Fair. Um, people that people may not know this, but the th- well, the three of us, two of us, I guess, are native to my to the South Florida area. You know, Ray and I both grew up there. Yeah. And, uh, and we hate going back. But oh, yeah, think, can't stand it. <laughs> right. Even the so idea we, of going back. Right. Yeah, I'm not looking forward to going back, except for Maker Fair. I do enjoy Maker Fair. Um, but, uh, so when is Nova? So Northern Virginia Maker Fair is on Sunday, March 19th from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. And it's in Reston, Virginia. Yep. And, uh, and just like the other Maker Fairs we've been to, uh, last year we were at Silver Spring. We, we went to National Maker Fair, but we weren't, we weren't really, we didn't have a table there. Um, we're going to have a table. We're going to have some of our projects. We're going to have the microphones. We'll probably record some interviews and, and stuff like that. Um, so everybody should come out to either one of those maker fairs if you're in the area and uh, say hi. Yeah. 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 In our application for the Miami one, I actually highlighted that you guys are both from 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 yeah, South Florida. So South Florida. So yeah. that. Yeah. That was a bonus. <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah. So some news there. Uh, anything else you guys want to add here at the top before we start the show? Uh, no, nothing in particular. No? All right, cool. So uh, this week, we're going to do all news. We haven't done news for a little bit, so we figured it's time to catch up with some news items, some interesting stuff that I've we've seen. So, uh, yeah, let's just get right to the main topic, which is all news stories. <laughs> all right, so we're going to jump right back into the news. Um... We'll jump around a little bit. There's a few stories here. Um, 
why don't we go since we just talked about a couple of maker fairs at the beginning i wanted to i wanted to plug this in here on the news uh, we're not going to be here but the announcement went out that chicago is going to have a maker fair this year um uh-huh yeah the first time they're having one they're trying to sort of make it like new york like we've never been to the bay area one but the bay area uh, maker fair is another big one and uh, so they're trying to sort of build it in that in that style so they're also looking for makers anybody that'd be interested uh you've been to chicago right right i have yes yeah um you know chicago's a beautiful city we've we've been there as well it's been a while since we've been there but if anybody should take the chance to go so I figured maybe we could talk real quick. How uh, would you guys recommend going to the Chicago, Chicago? Maker Fair? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, these maker fairs are localized. They're pretty cool. I mean, the ones that are in cities are even better because it includes the not not only does it include doesn't include the maker movement or the the communities that are already you know doing fabrication, but it also includes universities and includes um, major grantees. Then they also have like large companies like um, Google or other big companies. And Ch- Chicago has a lot of universities there, so I imagine there's going to be quite a few contingents of those universities there. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping design is going to be a big component of it. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, would be, would, I, I would hope that that's the case. Yeah, it'd be nice to see some architecture component to it because architecture is such a big thing in Chicago as well. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of one of the things I was gonna say. One of the best parts that uh, that I had when I was at uh, in Chicago, and that was for a uh, green building conference. Mm-hmm. Uh, we took uh, there's a there's actually an AIA office and bookstore. Yep. Uh, right there, and you can go on get uh, tours, different architectural tours, and mm-hmm. uh, you can take a nice trip of the city and, and really absorb a lot of these uh, architectural gems that are in there. Yep. Um, you, I mean, you could just go walking down in downtown and see beautiful buildings. But I think that the tours are very powerful uh, to take you outside of the downtown area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of my favorite tours when we were there was the architecture boat tour, actually. Oh, I didn't have yeah. that one. Yeah, it went up the river, and it was very cool. Very, very cool. So, oh. Yeah, so that's going to be April 22nd and 23rd. Um, like I said, we probably won't be able to go there this year. Um, Although I guess we're not that far driving distance. It's like a, like a 12 hour drive or something. But, uh, but maybe next year. Um, so yeah, go go out to Chicago Mayor Fair. All right. So the next thing I have here, which sort of ties in a little bit to Chicago then. Um, and I added this. It's funny because when Claudia, you first read this, you were like, why is this even here? Yeah, I um, get it. But it's a story about another mixed used high rise proposed for downtown Oak Park. Um, and I put this in here because um, I think here in D.C. we deal a lot with this sort of developments in areas of the city that aren't aren't historically high-rise areas of the city, aren't historically that dense. Um, and it's funny because not a lot of architects get involved in this debate. But when I saw this, I was like, you know, this is something any architect or anybody that's been involved in architecture can relate to. Because if you've been involved in architecture, you know about Oak Park. You know, Oak Park is famous because that's where Frank Lloyd Wright got his start, right? Yeah. America's most famous architect. Yeah, he was designing houses while working for, um, was it Sullivan? 
Sullivan. Yep. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, he was doing. He got fired because he was moonlighting as making these houses. Exactly. Exactly. And it has yeah. sort of this neighborhood has the largest collection of Frank Lloyd Wright houses. It has, uh, I think, one of the few churches. He, like he did a few churches, but one of the more interesting ones. Um, and now the name escapes me. Uh, yeah, I know which one you mean. I can't remember Temple. the name. Yes, yeah, there it Unity is. Temple. Yep. So to see this sort of 18-story high-rises go up in this area, I think to me it sort of raises a big flag. I don't know. What do you guys think about this kind of developments happening in these neighborhoods? Well, you know, there's uh, for me I'm kind of torn. There, there's always two sides. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there. it's nice to kind of maintain the character and nature of, of the neighborhoods on on one side. But on the other side, there's there's always progress. You know, there is this need and desire for more space. The land becomes more valuable. It, it is a very difficult thing to balance. Um, if developers had the way they they tear down every house in sight and put up a <laughs> put up a high rise, you know, and it'd be ugly too because because anything that's nice is expensive, and you know how they want to they want to pinch every penny out of a project. Uh, but there, I think that there's a balance that that can be struck, and I think one of the issues uh, reading the article that the that the locals have is the scale seems to be getting out of hand. Uh, you know, it is a downtown area, and there is an existing scale, but with the uh, the price of the land, they're trying to get a lot more building per square foot, and that's pushing the scale out. And, and I think that that. You know, architects being involved in helping to describe the right scale for a project instead of the developer saying, here is what I want. Mm. <laughs> and if, as you know, when you deal with a developer, that's all they say. Here's what I want. You go draw it for me. Mm-hmm. Right. But th- I think I agree. There needs to be a discussion as to whether something is appropriate for a certain neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the, it usually what we hear about this is is from the homeowner's perspective or like citizen organizations, neighborhood mm-hmm. associations that have lived in these communities for a very long time and they want to make sure that their, um, their neighborhood doesn't change so drastically. And mm-hmm. uh, you also hear from people usually who uh, are new home buyers who bought those their homes or yeah, their homes in that area, either because of the school system or because of um, how quaint the neighborhood was or how, uh, you know, big open space they may have or the streets, you know, just like very like community amenities. Mm -hmm. But then all of a sudden within, within five years, they have this high rise right in front of their house and you have, you know, maybe like more than, you know, like at least 50 units in that building now. Mm and completely change what they thought they were buying into and i think that usually it's 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 in that you you hear uh pushback from those citizens but not necessarily the architecture community trying to you know like uh protect something that they've invested in and -hmm. i think this is the one case that you know like it's not that architects have invested in old park but you know historically speaking this is a mecca for right for architects i think to me you know i think a lot of people take the stance of either you're for development or you're against development you know and i think 
there's such thing as responsible development. And um, and I feel like a lot of the times that's not sort of taken into account. Uh, I think to me this is one example of that. Um, yeah, you're right. It's the binary. is either no development at all, and therefore you are against progress, or uh, you do want full-on development, and it doesn't, you know, at, at the sake of, of culture, community, his, history, history in, this in this case. But it's not, it's not that binary. It's right. not a black or black or white. It's it's so much gray zones should be there, and that's the responsible or reasonable development. Right. So. All right. Well, cool. Um, I think something for people to think about something that ties into probably a lot of um, a lot of discussions that are going on in neighborhoods throughout the country at this point. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing I would also like to add is that it's what I find really interesting is that it puts the designer of this. Uh, the architect of these buildings in Oak Park mm-hmm. at a really weird spot, right? right? Because like there are there's this whole pressure of other architects looking down at you, like because of oh, what yeah. you're doing, <laughs> and then expecting that you're going to design something that is reasonable and nice and historically reasonable. Or, right. So, and you know you're bound to fail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, nobody's somebody somebody's always going to have an opinion, especially when it comes to architecture. Um, but I mean, I think it's good because I think as architects, we tend to sort of take too many steps back or like sort of, I can give you an example without being too specific. You know, I worked for a firm that was marketed and renowned as a historic restoration firm, right? A historic restoration firm. And I worked there for, a, for five, four or five years. I forget exactly how many now. Um, but a specific project came up where a church wanted us to tear the church down and rebuild this development where they had teamed up with a developer and they were going to um, they were gonna put a smaller church inside this development and then they were going to make a lot of money from the whole development. It was going to be like a partnership. Um, and we as this sort of firm were doing this design, but we were sort of being, I hate to say two-faced about it, but we kind of were because it was a, a, a building that for many people it was historically relevant it was it was quite a quite beautiful building as a matter of fact um but we sort of ignored that part of it and when it came time to the discussion and the debate we sort of took a step back and we're like you guys go ahead and it was sort of discussed within the office so we are not to come out on either side of this debate we're just Mm -hmm. in the design and let's not get in the middle of it I think we should get in the middle of some of these discussions and take a stand for things. Yeah. You know, believe in something. Yeah. So. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But it's always hard to stand up against your own client that's paying your bills. It's, it's a very, it's a tough position to be in. It is. But I mean, I think at some point you need to stand for something and yeah. maybe that's just not the client for you. You know, not every client's for you. No, of course not. So, you know, certain ones are not going to be for you. You know, this are, this reminds me of the time, uh, you guys know the story, where I told the client, if he wants to save uh, $13 million, don't build a building. Right. Yeah. yeah. And like, I got to tell you, I was, that was very tense at that moment. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And and it's a tough position we put ourselves in. I mean, we have a client, that uh, a very nice couple, but the, the wife sometimes says stuff like, oh, you know, 
I don't care what you put inside the walls. I just want it to look pretty. <laughs> it's not like we can put paper mache inside the walls. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> like that's not a place where you got money. Um, so, no, of course yeah. not. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. So, an interesting debate. Let's uh, see the next story. Uh, let's just pick randomly here. So you know, IKEA is often brought up on the podcast. So. Uh, Let's talk about one of the IKEA stories I found. Um, IKEA is going to have a hackable sofa coming to the U.S. here in the next couple of years. Actually, 2018. Uh, but we've often talked about the IKEA hacks and uh, and different projects. I think we even talked about doing an IKEA project at one point. So yep. it seems like they're actually embracing this idea. And they're going to come up with a sofa that is, I guess it's more modular. They call it sort of the IKEA sofa hack hack but you know it's gonna be basically a modular sofa um it's hard to talk about because there aren't aren't any like direct photos of it but you know what i'm curious about how they're going to spell it because you know how i get they they always (laughs) spell spell it in some kind of pseudo swedish way but it's really not it's an english word but it's got this really weird name (laughs) yes spelling thought i'm kind of curious how they're gonna spell this like it's gonna gonna spell hack is gonna have like no H and two U's and yeah <laughs> yeah yeah something like that yeah um, yeah it'll be interesting um, <laughs> you know I, I enjoyed in the article that they talked about you know they they've talked to students and they got people uh, like it could even become a crib at one point like to the you know you can attach different things to it and, and hack it if you will in certain ways that it can even become a crib that's funny so it was interesting um, what do you guys what do, what do you think about it Claudia. Well, the materials, right? They're able to do this because it's they're using a lightweight yes, aluminum for the structure. Right. Again, there's no photo directly of it. Like, there's some yeah. detailed shots and stuff, but they mentioned it's going to be mostly aluminum, and I guess it's a lot of recycled aluminum. And then the clippings, because then right. you can also sort of like um, make it form it in a way that you can it, it, it moves with your with your room. Right desire or the core right mm-hmm. so like you know the backing or whether you put the side arms right. in one area or not right and that's not fairly new but i think the fact that it's um lightweight and that is is made up of various parts so like you're basically putting the structure of it together is what's interesting yeah i mean like it, it has systems for certain things right they have like uh, their cabinets are systems to a degree. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, they have some shelving systems that are of various. Well, then they even have some couches that have inter- some interchangeable parts, but yep. they still very much look like a couch. They, I mean, but they don't have a couch that turns into a crib in, in any way, shape, or form. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how much of a hack it really becomes. Um, what do you think about it, Ray? Well. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, one of the things that that comes to mind to me is something we've discussed many times is that, you know, IKEA has a tendency of doing high design with, with low quality. So mm-hmm. I, I'm really dying to see how they finally execute it. <clears throat> but the I, I think it's a little bit of a kind of misdirection when they say that the aluminum has 40% recycled content and it, it, that's kind of like saying, oh, this wood has wood fibers in it. Right. You know? <laughs> I, I think they, 
Aluminum now is one of the most recycled metals, like steel is very recycled. You buy any piece of aluminum, it's going to have at least 40% recycled content in it. That's not a big surprise there. So I don't know. They're, they're trying to get a little bit of extra market uh, marketability out of something they're doing anyway because they don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. So that kind of thing, when, whenever something is blatantly marketing only, that kind of rubs me the wrong way. And I'm, mm-hmm. so, but that's, that's a different whole, whole different thing. It sounds to me like they want to uh, make this the, uh, the, <laughs> the Swiss Army knife of, couch, of couches. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, because that, that was the flavor of, of how they were describing all of the things that it could be. I was waiting for where the toothpick and the scissors were going to pop out. <laughs> mm. um, but, you know, and I'm joking, but I think that if they really looked at it, like making the Swiss Army knife of couches actually mm. would be a very good uh, uh, design uh, pattern to go with. Because right now they got all these parts and they're trying to figure out uh, their analogy is is a software analogy. You know, all these p- parts and pieces, instead of being accessories or kits, they're, they're referring to them as apps, or at least analogs for apps. Mm-hmm. So for me, the, this analogy for software, uh, which they're embracing, I, I think if they looked at the analogy for the the thing that, that uh, you know, it... it like I, like, you know, like the Swiss Army knife of, of couches, if they embrace that kind of idea, mm-hmm. uh, I think it, it might make a better product. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I like your, your description of it, of being sort of the Swiss Army knife of couches. Um, yeah. It's interesting because to me, it's, I think it, the, the reason I like it, I guess, is because it sort of points at something. You know, we've talked about companies that have failed because they wouldn't adapt yeah. to the trends mm-hmm. or whatever. And this is an example of them looking at something that people already do with their products and sort of learning from it and saying, okay, well, we're going to do the same thing. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, I think on the scale of good IKEA ideas, this is <laughs> better than the bicycle. <laughs> yeah. Or the, what is that, the, uh, the house or something? Right. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think, you know, when you start looking at those ideas, I think this is better than the bicycle. Probably not as good as the next thing we're going to talk about when it comes to IKEA. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, on a, on a separate note, have you seen the, the joke memes of uh, that they're using for IKEA? Have you seen any of those? Uh, no, no, I don't think so. They are so funny. Mm-hmm. They are uh, like border wall, you know. <laughs> you haven't seen that? I have not seen this. I'm like, wow, you know what? That that is I don't agree with it, but I think that's a clever that's a clever way of incorporating huh. uh the whole IKEA mentality uh of you know all these pre built components into something uh that is politically current. Hmm. Yeah, Claudia's <laughs> looking at the memes now. Yeah. No, I have I have not I seen have this. Not seen any of this. Uh, interesting. Yeah, I just thought, because I've, I've seen a bunch of them this week. I'm like, hey, these are actually quite clever. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. Cool. All right, well, let's, uh, let's go on to another story. So uh, let's talk about this new story. It's called the Robotic Bricklaying Machine. Ray, you added this on, on here. Yes, this is something I, uh, I saw last year. Um, and I'm like, you know what? That is a fascinating concept so 
you know, a lot of the world still uses masonry construction. Uh, we use it here, but not not to the degree uh, that it's used in a lot of parts of the world for mm -hmm. the actual structure itself. We use a lot of masonry as veneer. Right. Um, but uh, in a lot of places, it's just pretty pretty standard. Everything is made out of either structural tile, uh, which we don't hardly ever see anymore, mm -hmm. structural tile, uh, or, uh, or concrete blocks. So uh, masonry is a labor-intensive, uh, highly skilled type of work that is done on a building. So, you know, a crew of masons could be uh, as small as three guys, and, and usually if it's a sizable building, it'll be several crews uh, working together, you know, 20 guys on a project. And, uh, you know, everybody has a specific job to do. You have the head mason that knows the entire plan uh, of what's happening to the building, and then you have everybody down the line from mixing mortar to... Uh, carrying bricks and keeping everybody supplied, and then you have the other masons. So this concept is about fully uh, making robotic the entire masonry crew so that the bricks are laid, the mortar is mixed, it's applied, and the whole structure is uh, is assembled by a, uh, a computer-controlled uh, system with, on a boom. Um, and it delivers the bricks right to the end of the boom, right where they need to be. And they boast that they can do the work very quickly. Um, this is still in development. It's not um, ready, but they have a lot of prototypes. I'm not sure if you saw the videos. They have them mm -hmm. attached to, like, front-end loaders. It's not really on a truck yet. Right. Uh, but they are moving quite fast on these prototypes. Mm -hmm. And I, for me, when I saw this, I'm like, what a fantastic labor-saving development in in uh, technology for something that is very labor intensive. Uh, but the more you look into it, like any new technology, there's always critics. People mm -hmm. always criticize you. You know, uh, <laughs> when the when the car first came out, people would say, oh, those horseless carriages, nobody's ever gonna drive one of those, that's crazy, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so this is one of those kind of things. And the argument that a lot of tradesmen have is that it is, a machine that is going to eliminate their jobs. Mm -hmm. And I agree, it probably will eliminate a lot of jobs. However, it will create many more. Somebody needs to program uh, the computer for to lay out the, uh, the bricks. Somebody needs to run the machine. Somebody needs to keep material supplies. So where some jobs are eliminated, others are created. And I think there's probably a balance in there. Uh, but I think it's... Uh, it's going to be a, an interesting technology to keep an eye on, how it saves labor and, and you would think will reduce the cost of construction. Yeah, I wonder. Um, because when I, when I look at the machine working, especially the, the video example that they show on their website, because um, they show it laying out the brick for a sort of very small yes, like yes. two-room home, I guess it would be. Um, the part that's not showing that like there's more, well, they call it a brick lane, but it, it's really a a CMU or a block laying machine more than brick because it's not laying, you know, the traditional four by four by eight brick. Correct. It's laying, it's yeah. laying like large cinder blocks, really. Mm -hmm. um, um, but you know, it, the video is it, it's it's very interesting, but it, it's also when you when you study it from a certain point of view, it's just it's sort of in a vacuum, really, it's in a lab. 
Yes. Um, when you're out on the site, first the part that's not laying here is, you know, you got to lay the foundation of the building first. Mm-hmm. So I wonder how it handles that to begin with, because there's got to be a trench dug out that it needs to be laying specifically on. And and then there's a part of it, like, I think there's going to be a scale issue. You know, if you're doing an addition to a small, a small addition to a house, is using this thing going to really be viable for that kind of project? I wonder if it would even be viable at this point for the size thing that they're showing there. You know? Yeah. I think you're right. I think there are some hurdles that they're that they need to overcome. Uh, but looking at at where they are now, I, I was quite impressive. Mm-hmm. No, it is very impressive to see this machine sort of laying it out like it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I agree. I think there's some hurdles that that it needs to overcome. And I think you're right. I think there's going to be some scales like, you know, a small addition where it simply isn't going to work right. Right. I think that the that the scale and the economy of this of this machine is going to be best suited for new construction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's one of those things that it could it could either change things like you're saying, or it could sort of not be able to find itself a market. Because if it's a much bigger, like a commercial size project, you know, the machine may get so big that it's not feasible to make a machine that big to lay that much block out. But if yeah. it's too small of a house. It may be too expensive at first to do it, so I, I don't know. It's it's interesting in that sense. What is what is your take on it, Connie? Well, I really don't like it at all. Yeah. And <laughs> specifically, like the way that 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 Ray described it too, like in the context that Ray, that the Ray described it, in that in most developed countries, including Australia, which I would include as a perhaps developed country, um, we're not sending aid. Australia that I know of, at least. <laughs> we were not sending it to Australia, but I mean, have yeah. you seen the, the size of the spiders they have in that place? <laughs> yes, but that's a different <laughs> conversation in terms of development as yeah. a whole. Um, in countries like here, we, we're not really using this type of construction, right, according to what Ray said, and then the, there are countries where they do use it. And having a machine like this, it does take away the jobs that are very much needed in in. Uh, developing countries mm-hmm. and it creates jobs and a lot of profit in developed countries mm-hmm. so it takes away the balance and it takes away um, a lot of the manufacturing product mm-hmm. of countries that are trying to become more developed and, well, and that's a really big issue I think I don't think this machine is viable for a developing country to be honest with you because as a developing country the reason they still build so much with block is because the the manual labor is much cheaper than it is here mm-hmm. right there's a reason why yeah. here in the United States we build stick construction right we build with wood frame and whatnot because it's cheaper to find somebody to do that work than it would be to find a mason mm-hmm. um so I don't think this machine could survive. In and a I think if you're going to be, uh, and I think you're right on that. Wrong, correct me if I'm wrong. If you're here in the United States, if you're building something uh, using masons and this type of construction, that house or that dwelling already is a high-end dwelling. Most likely, yeah. Right. So you know what are you saving? Uh, you're saving, yeah. You're saving on the on the mas- on, on 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 the you know paying a higher wage to high to somewhat high-skilled workers, right? And this is going to take away those jobs even here that are, even though they're still high-paid, 
and you need to provide training mm -hmm. on the use of this as well. So there's also a cost uh, impediment for the workers. Yeah, I mean, it's a hard thing to, to predict. Um, like you could argue a crane, like a construction crane, took away the job of a lot of people that would just carry stuff up mm -hmm. the, the building, you know. Um, but with that felt, I, I don't know, I don't know the answer to that. Um, you know, and that's why I feel like construction, more than anything, sort of finds its, it's like water, it finds its level. And it's yeah. always going to find its level when it comes to this kind of technology that it introduces. Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember, like, because in one of our, in one of the streets nearby, they're redoing the the pavers on the sidewalk, uh -huh. and I was just sitting there at a at a at a, at a light, just like amazed that you know, because I'm always afraid that there's going to be uh, nails. Nails. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Jose's like, they don't use nails at all for this, Claudia. <laughs> this. Like, nails are not involved in this yeah, process. <laughs> But what I did see is like so the group you know there was a group of workers and they were they had this like really cool little tool it was like a really long tool that that basically clamps up a bunch of oh yeah of the, yeah, yeah. Of the, the paper of the bricks mm -hmm. and he you know like one person can carry a bunch of them mm -hmm. and and then just literally just place it down and they're already in in place like they're already like in the right you know mm -hmm. I guess length or whatever. And I was like, that's really cool, because I would have been doing that, like, you know, three times, you know, going back and forth, yeah. back and forth, and mm -hmm. everything else. It's such a, such a simple little tool that makes things so much easier for them. Well, and that's the sort of thing I mean, is that construction will find things like that and dismiss things that, like, to us, look like such a great idea, but, you know, they'll... I just had this discussion, let me just say, I just had this discussion for a job that we have, and we're having to put this 30-some-foot beam up about 20 feet on this house, right? Mm -hmm. But it's a, it's a house being renovated. And, you know, we're sitting here like, oh, what size screen? How are they going to fit that in there? What size screen are they going to have? Are they going to have to make a hole in the roof in order to lift it up there? And the guy was just like, no, I'll just get a bunch of my guys and we'll, we'll, we'll carry get, it in there. We'll carry it in there and then we'll build platforms and we'll carry it all the way up. And yeah. I'm like, this is a 900 pound beam. But when you think about it, yeah, you could rent a crane for the day, or you could just get nine guys to help you carry this thing, and then each one of you is just carrying 100 pounds, really, right? Yeah, and that's not so bad. Right, so that's what I'm saying. Construction sort of finds its level. <laughs> um, yeah. Now, if you had, you know, 80 beams to put in there, then that would right. just kill the guys. It's just too much work. Exactly. Mm -hmm. and, and they then wouldn't a crane... be able to do it that fast, right? Yeah, then a crane makes more sense. Right. Yeah. So, so yeah, like everything, you know, scale, I think, is, is an important factor here. But I think this will be interesting to see what happens in the next 10, 5, 10 years. Well, and it's interesting to see how the, the technology will develop because there's so many unknowns with construction, you know. Um, like, this, this will this machine sort of find, find the self-level in order to, to put down all these blocks and make sure they're level with each other? Because, you know, mortar has to be introduced here at some point or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I'm imagining... Yeah, I'm imagining like three D printers are just now finally able to start sort of find you know they 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 go and they touch each corner of the plate to make sure the plate's level you know mm -hmm. like self leveling this machine is gonna have to learn to do the same thing yeah I say learn to do somebody's gonna have to program this machine figure to out a way to do it exactly yeah. but it's even worse because you're gonna be outdoors doing it you know mm -hmm. so yeah, interesting yep. Um, well, so I picked this story for a reason, 
because that leads in nicely to the next story that ties in. I'm all about tying in the stories. You know, we're talking about a robotic machine that potentially could take jobs away. You know, mm-hmm. it just happens to be that one of the... Uh, I have a hard time describing him. I guess one of the pioneers of computing, you could say, right? Bill <laughs> <Yes>. Gates <laughs> says that... So ro- many ways to describe yeah, him. There's a lot of ways to describe him. You could philanthropist. <laughs> oh, Bill no, Gates. that would no? be like not the way that I would describe him. He's not a philanthropist. He gives away a lot of money. Uh, I think he is now. He is, right, yeah. but there's, there's mm-hmm. question. I have, my own, I have my own ways of describing Bill Gates. He's the guy that stole a lot of technology, but neither here nor there. <laughs> anyway, that's a discussion for another day. But anyways, Bill Gates says robots should be taxed like workers. So he's making the argument that if you're going to replace a bunch of workers with, with you know, automated machines to do their job, you should have to pay taxes as if it was still a person doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm interested to see what you think about this, right? Because you work in a machine shop where, you know, you could, I don't know, I mean, maybe you already have replaced some people with automated machines. Yeah. Um, we haven't, actually. You know, we, uh, the way our shop works, yeah, it's, uh, it's a bit of a, of a balance between uh, skilled labor and machines. You know, mm-hmm. without, the machines alone can't run themselves without the, uh, the skilled laborers to, to uh, program them or, or to control them, mm-hmm. but um, we do make machines. You know, we are we're commissioned to make machines all the time, not necessarily robotic machines, but machines that serve a function that would replace one or two or, or more individuals, and they do the job faster and better. Um, they don't fire those people. They end up taking those people and putting them elsewhere in the same facility. So. Uh, you know, it's always weird when you when you hear these kind of arguments that oh yeah, you know, people are going to be losing their jobs. Uh, none of the machines that we have built has cost anybody their job yet. They end up getting put in another part of the facility doing a different function. Mm-hmm. So um, it's interesting though because what you are what what he is proposing will basically de incentivize a a facility to um, to modernize. And become more efficient. It's, a, uh, and I think he put it. The uh, author put it in there, that uh, it's a tax on efficiency, and you, you know it's it's a it's a weird way to look at it. Um, if you are looking at robots replacing workers only from the standpoint of, of the community, uh, then I suppose it might make, you know, a little bit of sense. Uh, but if you are if you are of the mind that a business needs to do what it can to be more efficient, to be competitive in the world market, et cetera, et cetera, be more economical, I am not sure that that this would be the solution. It's an interesting idea, mm-hmm. but I think maybe somewhere in the middle would be more reasonable. So, so tax only certain things and like of the process. Like, how do you how do you find would, the middle in this? Well, when you when if somebody's going to buy a robot, right? Mm-hmm. The you buy the robot, it has a cost. When you pay that cost, there's a tax. What he's saying is that you keep taxing the damn robot you've already bought over and over and over and over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, maybe the initial tax, you know, is a it's a high tax, not just a sales tax. Um, in I know in the state of Maryland that if you have inventory in your facility. You need to pay tax on the inventory you have every year. Mm-hmm. 
So if I have, you know, a million dollars in tooling, well, every year I'm going to be paying taxes on a million dollars of tooling, whether I use it or not, whether it's already been taxed or not. So there's a lot of types of businesses that is not in their best interest to be in the state of Maryland. However, in Delaware, they don't have that. So, you know, we have a huge inventory of all kinds of parts and pieces. You've been to our shop mm-hmm. that I don't have to worry about paying tax on because yeah. we don't have something ridiculous <laughs> like that. She's laughing because that's putting it mildly. We have a huge inventory. <laughs> no, I was laughing at basically. Like I had this Im- image of like crossing crossing the border between Maryland and Delaware. And Delaware, and entering, yeah. Entering a like storage facility. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Amazon built a huge facility uh, here in Delaware, right. uh, in northern Delaware. They had a choice. Mm-hmm. But if you are Amazon and you are going to be faced in paying taxes on inventory, you have for replacement shafts for your mm-hmm. conveyor systems. Mm-hmm. It can be a, it could be a, a factor, you know. A million square foot facility, you've got a lot of parts that are just going to sit on the shelf until they're needed. Mm-hmm. So what do you think about this? I mean, I, I've been, I have, I've been dealing with taxing. Um, so I've, been, I've been dealing with carbon tax and this, this idea of carbon tax and carbon and taxing CO two emissions. And mm-hmm. it's, it's really hard to put your head around it because the way that policymakers, environmental policymakers, deal with this, they, they quickly go into the technicalities of it and you're like wait I'm still trying to wrap wrap my head around something that's not that you can't necessarily see Mm -hmm. um but this I can actually see a little bit and I you know like the like and I can only put it in in perspective of my house you know if I can't take care take advantage of the spaces in my house if the entire house is storage (laughs) and that's that's in the in the sample that, that that Ray gave you know like then yeah, it makes sense to tax uh, storage and you know storing mm-hmm. items in Maryland at least. That, to me, it just it makes sense, especially in a in a in a state that's small, relatively small, and high density too, um, where land value and yeah, land is valuable. Um, but in this particular case with Bill Gates. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with Ray. I think that there's got to be a some type of a middle line in it. Because, yeah, you you know, how much burden you want to put on, on, on a company. But it depends on the scale of the company. We're talking about mid, you know, mid-size, you know, manufacturing. Then, you know, yeah, it makes a big difference to them. But if it's large-scale manufacturing, then why not, you know, like, you know, the Fords of the world, why not? that and maybe not not you know put a cap you know say okay well it's only going to be for the first five years or something like that um and then use that money i mean the whole purpose of tax is not just to like you know punish companies it's it's to reinvest that money um on other other needs that this that the community will have um, you know, better schools in order to be able to have more tech-savvy, um, uh, a, a tech-savvy workforce, mm-hmm. right? How do you do that when, you know, like, well, that those, one of those ways is by taxing people, taxing these large companies and reinvesting their money properly. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's a way of balancing it. Uh, 
making the whole system more equitable. Um, interesting. I mean, I think I agree with a lot of what you guys are both saying. I think the first thing for me was uh, it's a little hypocritical for Bill Gates of all people <laughs> to be saying this, right? Yeah. <laughs> Bill Gates, who helped in many ways, but how many people are a business by bringing computers to every house? Um, so, yeah, it's a little hypocritical for him, for the billionaire Bill Gates to be saying this now. But um, I guess in, in a way, I also see where he's coming from in that if you didn't have this machine doing this job, you would have to be paying somebody a wage and you'd be paying taxes. You, you're already saving money because you're not paying a wage to the machine, right? You're not paying the wage that you'd be paying that worker. So now to just ask you to pay the taxes you would be paying for that worker is still a savings. Yeah, I don't know, but you know, when you buy that machine, people think the machines are cheap. That machine to replace that one individual worker could have cost you four million dollars. You know, it's not, it's not a uh, a like. Yeah, but, comparison. It but if it wasn't going to save you money in the long run to buy that machine, you wouldn't have done it. You would have kept the person working there. Yeah. So in a way, you're already saving money. So. I mean, I don't know. I don't know about manufacturing in that scale. I don't know that kind of business. But I, the reason I found this interesting is because it's similar to what we were just talking about in the construction, right? With construction, yeah. I, I know it'll find its level. I don't know about this part of it because I've never had to manufacture in that sort of large scale. I know you guys do a lot of sort of manufacturing by order, right? Like You're yes. not necessarily manufacturing like... 100,000 cars or something like that. No, of course not. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, we handle basically small scales manufacturing that right. most places don't want to handle. Yeah. But then the next point becomes is how does this kind of law move into the future? You know, if I one if one day I have a robotic maid, am I having to pay taxes for this robotic maid? Is that what he's also saying? Yeah, well, it yeah, it actually the the article actually brings up that point. It's like it says that you know the second point of why he's saying this mm. is that currently most people like the general public believe that yes what we said in the first article these machines are taking away jobs mm -hmm. right so then there's what Ray said is that you know we also need to consider progress mm -hmm. right and what the article is saying is innovation mm -hmm. right so in order for people to buy into innovation then you need they need to be able to see a return of of the innovation right away mm -hmm. so that they can they can they can build up a tolerance for innovation that it's not just a like two separate ideas of we need to innovate 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 who cares about jobs 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 or who cares about what you guys think because we need to do it for the sake of innovation right. so what he's saying is is that if you were to tax it then maybe there's a there's a way that there's a greater greater buy-in, and it's not just this idea of tar of um, taking away regulation or taking away tariffs, and for those that make a lot of money, and then there's politics behind this too, yeah. which I don't even want to get into. But that's I think that's the that's that's usually the underlying cause or reason for this taxes. Yeah. Carbon tax is the same reason. We need to save the planet. We believe we need to save the planet, so therefore we need to tax carbon. And people are like, well, we don't use up that much 
CO2. Mm. You guys do. Why do we have to pay for it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think you bring up a good point about uh, the innovation because the the tax basically will slow down the innovation. You know, if you're going to be paying a tax on 15 robots, you're like, well, I can't afford 15 robots to pay that tax. I'm only going to get seven robots. So it slows down that level of innovation, allowing you time to acclimate individuals and maybe retrain some of your workforce. Um, but yeah, I think it's a very complicated issue. And I agree with you, Jose, 100% that it is very hypocritical of Bill Gates to do this. <laughs> because, uh, you know, we are of the age where we remember him giving away um, Internet Explorer just so he can put Netscape out of business. Right. Yeah, he gave it away for free on purpose because he was trying to corner the market on browsers in order to to make the competition go out of business. And I used to like yeah. Netscape. You used to like Netscape, okay, yeah. but you might have been the only one. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I mean, I think they, I think Netscape, uh, they actually were very creative. I think jo- uh, JavaScript came from Netscape. I think they're the yeah. ones that, that yeah. innovated it. Mm-hmm. So we all know that, you know, the, the history of Bill Gates was basically, you know, picking up uh, uh, DOS for nothing and selling it to IBM for a fortune. Mm-hmm. Right. And then he... He didn't actually make anything. He just bought it from one place and sold it to another. Yep. <laughs> and did yeah. the same thing with Windows. He didn't come up with the idea of Windows. He just took it from somebody else. So yeah. it's... Yeah. It, either way. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Maybe the one guy who should not be talking about innovation. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> oh, and the guy, one guy that shouldn't be talking about making technology that puts people out of business. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, anyways. <laughs> so in, an interesting discussion. Yeah. For all of us ex- except for Bill Gates. He should stay out of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's go to the next story. A little more lighthearted. This is sort of... I put this in here, even though it's not really a news story, but I think it's some stuff that I want us to be able to get into at least, you know, maybe once a week or once every couple of weeks. Um... This article is called Six Simple Bed Frames You Can DIY. Um, and I put this in here because, you know, we don't really talk about DIY that much sometimes. So I figured, you know, this is something everybody can relate to. Everybody's got a bed. And uh, everybody's got to buy a bed frame. Um, there's some pretty ugly ones out there. I don't know. This. The mattress on the floor works pretty good. Yeah, I know you're telling us. We've had our mattress <laughs> on the floor since we moved to this new place. Oh, you haven't so. set it up yet? Well, we have we, we have to buy a new frame, and we just haven't found one we liked or for the right price that we liked. And uh, we also, like, have a lot of pets. Like, there's right. more animals in our house than there are yeah. human beings. So they, they seem to think that that is their bed. Mm. Their bed, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, their pet bed. Right. So it's like, forget it. This isn't working. <laughs> but um, out of these six ideas, which one do you guys like better? You want to go first, Claudia? Yeah, I mean, I like, I like the anything that provides storage underneath, like so, like an additional use. It's not just the fact that you're using it as a, as a frame. Mm-hmm. So I like the uh, stacked on cabinets. Is that one. your favorite? Yeah, Sorry, that what's was your least favorite. My least favorite one is <laughs> the suspended platform. Hmm. 
because mm-hmm. uh, that that's just I mean I think it's cool and it, it looks kind of cool and it's like a swing or whatever but it's very swingers like I guess I don't know very swingers what are you saying the cinder blocks the cinder blocks one is also a little too like uh, well I mean I, I my favorite one was also the the one with the the drawers and my least favorite one was the hanging one mostly because I think I'd get seasick on it. Um, yeah but what about you Ray? I, I would agree that suspended one was my least favorite yeah. and I, I think it's just getting in and out would be be a bit of a pain to because mm-hmm. I think it's gonna want to swing around while you're trying to get it out and then can right. you imagine as you're waiting you're trying to go to sleep and it, the thing is still swinging because it's gonna take a while <laughs> exactly. you know? yeah. yeah and uh, but you know I, uh, the cinder blocks I didn't love. But only because I could just imagine getting up in the middle of the night and smacking your toe on, uh, on blocks. Oh. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so I think I like the simplicity of the headboard only. Mm-hmm. I it do is, too. Yeah. You know, and of course, because it's so simple, there's you know, there's nothing else to distract, and, and mm-hmm. it's economical. Yeah. I will also say the least DIY of them all is the suspended platform bed. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. you should not be doing that by yourself if you don't know what you're doing. No. <laughs> yes, please do not do that. <laughs> Just as a... If you do this and you end up crashing and ripping off your ceiling or whatever, we did not tell you to do this. Yes. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's something else. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's go on to another story. Um, back on the design slash architecture part of it, um, tell us about this cardboard house, Ray. Oh, you like that. Yeah, you're not sure. Uh, <laughs> you know, to be honest with you, I didn't. I don't love the design of it. Um, but what, what, tell, tell the people about it a little first. Yeah. Oh, um, well, it's you know the idea of a pre-manufactured dwelling is not new. Obviously, right. we've we've seen different versions of this. Something as simple as a yurt, and I know we've covered um, you know container houses and modular things and even 3D printed ones, but where I think that this one is completely different. I mean, it is a modular house, uh, but it's made by wrapping layers of a uh, easily recyclable material, uh, cardboard. And, you know, we know that cardboard is a paper product and it can be recycled basically indefinitely. Um, and they have devised a system by which they can layer, and I think it's 24 layers. Mm-hmm. It's called the Wickle House, if anybody's interested in that. Um, and uh, they actually built a machine that basically just winds uh, a form, in this case, kind of like that. Uh, the idea of the shape of a house in, in, in this particular case. I, I think it could be any shape. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> this just happens to be the shape that they chose. Um, and this machine will, you know, winds these layers, adding adhesive between the layers until it's 24 layers thick and creating a very rigid, stiff structure that, uh, then you can add and they're in sections. So you can add as many sections as you want together, uh, to create a, a house. Now <clears throat> they are boasting that it will last about a hundred years and that it can be completely recycled. I am not 100% sure I buy that, <laughs> but um, I agree with you that the actual design from a, from a design aesthetic leaves a lot to be desired, 
but there's something to be said about the simplicity of it and uh, the technique by which you manufacture it. I think uh, you couldn't find a simpler way to create a enclosable space. Well, I kind of disagree with that. <laughs> because, I mean, I, I look at the article for, to them, because this is a continuous sheet of cardboard that they're wrapping yeah. around this thing. They're spinning the frame around like a, like a sewing machine spins yarn yes, around the thing. Yes. I think there's much simpler ways of, of sheathing a house because it's really just sheathing, right? The cardboard's not really the insulation, I think I think that it is all one unit. I think it's, I mean, they it's don't give you a whole lot of information. Right? Yeah, they don't give a lot of information. That that's the part that makes it hard, I guess. Yeah. See, I, I took away from it because it's a metal frame that they're wrapping this cardboard around on. That on the yeah, I think that's just the plywood. form, though. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what's confusing. So you think you think once they wrap this cardboard around, that metal frame comes off and it's just the cardboard? Yeah, because looking at the machine, that frame. Is just to be able to wrap it. Oh my gosh! But then, how do they, how do they attach the plywood on the inside? They just attach it to the cardboard. That's part. That's the part that I don't get. <laughs> yeah, you see, I, I am not sure. Sure. But but if when you look at it, it would probably take you know twenty minutes, thirty minutes mm-hmm. to wrap this thing. So it's right. very quick to do. But yeah, I, there's a lot of unknowns mm-hmm. in this whole scenario. I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if they're making two layers, one layer on the outside, one layer, and then foaming in between. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I also don't know how insulative it would be to just have cardboard wrapped around. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. There's just a lot of stuff left up in the air that I, I didn't fully understand, yeah. which makes, when I, when I see something with so many gaps in the information, it makes me not trust it. Yeah. You know? But, yeah. What do you think about it, Claudia? Uh, I don't like tiny homes. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's not the point. <laughs> can I can I can I write about the fact that I don't like renting the tiny point tiny homes? Um, I, I, the design is kind of cool. I, I think really? that at least yeah, I, I appreciate the the design of it. Uh, yeah, I don't know how feasible. I mean, it was crazy because I was expecting it to be like more like to actually have the feeling that you are in a cardboard home but you're not because they put all this laminate in it all the plywood inside and kind of like defeats the purpose of knowing really what it's made out of since it's just a tiny home you know like just a little toy home Hmm. so you you don't see the cardboard in any way you don't see it on the inside or you don't see it exactly yeah because they said they cover the plywood on a on a plastic wrap basically yeah so. And it's mm-hmm. also supposed to be waterproof, which is like at least you know like that's a good thing. Well, that's the waterproof, and they put waterproof on the waterproof. outside of the cardboard. Oh, yeah, see, yeah. So that's what it is. So that's the plastic part. Right. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I mean, a home that can last a hundred years. That's a tiny little home like that. It's really not like to me. Like, what's the innovation in that? There's oh, just okay. nothing. There's nothing innovative in it. Mm-hmm. So, but I, it's a cool design. I think it's cool that they're you're trying different things that's a that's a really cool thing I, mean, I think to me the most interesting part was them spinning this frame around to wrap the cardboard around it yeah it was it was interesting mm-hmm. all right well, let's uh let's let's do two more um let's go back to the world of ikea who is now going to 
released the sleekest kitchen cabinet all made from recycled materials. Here's another quick story. Um, what do you think about this uh, cabinet, Claudia? The IKEA cabinets. I like the design of them. They're yeah. cute. They're really, like. Uh, I like the fact. So, you know, we had we helped a couple of our friends like put together the kitchen and stuff like that and there's always the idea like okay well let's go get the you know really nice modern looking cabinets that are inexpensive or that fit a, a reasonable budget mm-hmm. especially when you're thinking about like a one bedroom home you know one bedroom apartment or something like that mm-hmm. <laughs> you can do all the searches seriously like i'm telling this to everybody look for it online look for it everywhere you're not gonna find anything less expensive than ikea Cabinets. For cabinets right. that are modern looking, that have that, like a modern sleek design. Um, so, yeah, so I think that IKEA is just good at that. And I'm glad that they're doing this out of recycled material. But, you know, then I'm, I remember what Ray said about recycled material that that is the way to go. So, why are we like. Well, it's a marketing thing. Yeah, Everybody wants in. to say their stuff is recyclable, everyone wants to say their stuff is green because it's so hot right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, this is, like, produced from recycled PET bottles, too? Mm-hmm. PET, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's that's pretty cool mm-hmm. in that sense. I appreciate that. Yeah. So. Well, with this, they're actually going a little bit more out of their way to get recycled materials. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about the, the cabinet? So this, and it's just the one picture of the cabinet so far, but, yeah. Yeah, and... Um, you know, I think it's it's actually the just the fronts that they're that they're describing as part of their new line. Um, so uh, I'm curious. I am more curious about the actual case itself. The front is you know 25% of the cabinet, but uh, but it, it's an interesting um, development because I don't know of any other cabinet that is manufactured that way. Mm-hmm. So. Now that there is a, a choice, typically when you have when you're buying cabinets and you want to be environmentally friendly, you're looking for uh, something that doesn't have urea formaldehyde in it, or maybe it's made from FSC certified wood, things like that. Uh, but here you have a recycled and and it and we probably should say it does not look like plastic. It does right. not look like it's made from recycled materials. Very nice looking, uh, beautifully presented. Um, if anything, if I had to describe the image, I would say it almost looks like slate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's very, very well crafted, flat panels. Um, so, uh, you know, the the wood itself is from, I guess, recycled sources, and then it's wrapped in a plastic film, which is from uh, PET bottles. Uh, for those who don't know, you know, it's polyethylene, uh, which comes in many flavors. Don't even, don't even get me started on the flavors, by the way. Uh, because uh, plastic is not just plastic, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, be, uh, you know, beautiful as we expect from from IKEA. You know, high design, and mm-hmm. uh, I I would be interested in seeing uh, if they are easily adaptable to any cabinet, or do you need to have an IKEA cabinet to put it on? Um, yeah, so I can tell you. I mean, it's, I, so for full disclosure. I work for a company that sells very high-end, expensive European-made cabinets um, as part of our business. So just so everybody knows that. But even we, when somebody's looking for a kitchen and a budget, we recommend them go to IKEA. Yeah. You know? Um, 
they do, however, have very standard sizes to themselves. They don't always have sort of, you know, you there's standard cabinet sizes like 24, 36, and whatnot. Um, yes, They yes. don't always sort of follow that necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a lot of odd sizes. I think they've been trying to get better at it, but, you know, again, being European <coughs> and having their base in centimeters... Yeah, you know, yeah, they go with like ninety centimeter, forty five centimeter, that sort of measurements for their cabinets. Mm-hmm. So, um, and they just convert them to to inches. Um, so it can be tough to adapt their doors to other cabinets. Yes. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I like the look of it. I appreciate the recycled part of it. Um, I definitely recommend IKEA for cabinets if you're on a tight budget. You know, I redid somebody's kitchen cabinets and appliances included plus moving some walls around we did it for about twelve thousand dollars and you know that's pretty good for a full kitchen redo like complete gut of the kitchen so yeah that's not bad especially if you're paying somebody to do it that's not bad right yeah they didn't do it themselves yeah there was somebody that did it and like i said all the appliances were were bought new too so yeah well you remember my uh my house in baltimore those Mm -hmm. the cabinets i used I used there. Yeah. Um, I, I want to say I spent $1,200 on those cabinets. Mm-hmm. But I will tell you this. Those are not for your do-it-yourself or to assemble. Right. <laughs> Basically, those were uh, high-quality cabinets that you would actually buy from a shop that you would have them custom-made. Mm-hmm. The only difference is that I was the one that put them together uh, with, with my existing woodworking tools. It's not, it's not you take a little Allen wrench and put your hardware together and you have an instant cabinet. Right. Uh, but they were, they were very well made um, and, uh, and very nice, but not, it is not anywhere near close to being as, as DIY friendly as the IKEA cabinets are. Right. And uh, yeah, and I went a little crazy on my kitchen because I, you remember moving the stairs? <laughs> mm-hmm. No, I remember moving the stairs. I almost fell through the stairs, remember? Yeah. I mean, that was fun. Good, good uh, memories, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, all right. I was going to, we were going to do one more, but actually let's go ahead and move on to the next section of the, of the podcast instead. All right. All right. Yep. Alright, so this segment is, of course, the product of the week. Um, as always, we are not associated with the company or the product that we're talking about, especially in this case, um, <laughs> because this is Disney's Princess and, Pup- and Puppy Robot Teach Robots Teach Your Kids to Code. So it's a new product. Um, they don't really show the princess in this, they really just show the, the, the puppy. But it's basically a robot you put together and you can program to do certain moves and actions and whatnot. Uh, what do you guys think about it, Ray? Well, um, I, I got to tell you, I, I don't know. I don't really know how I feel about it. <laughs> and I, I think part of me is, and, and you know, you and I went to school about the same time mm-hmm. um, and we studied computer programming. And, you know, that's when you actually had to write the code for the computer to understand it. Mm-hmm. 
it it seems to me that they are trying to make programming uh, kind of to me reminiscent of a McDonald's register. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like oh, you you're ordering this. Well, the button for ordering this is this, and the butter you want to supersize it. Here's the other button you got to press. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of making it because we've seen a lot of other things that were similar to this that teach coding. Um, and it seems to me like the actual the actual thinking about coding is eliminated into its most basic steps. Right. Um, now, maybe for the target demographic being children, maybe it makes more sense. But uh, I, I look at this kind of stuff, and I think the project is interesting, but I think it's like, you know, programming for dummies kind of, kind of thing. And I understand it's made for children and that, you know, it's a different aspect, but I've, I've seen so much of it uh, lately mm-hmm. that I'm wondering how much coding is it really teaching? Right, and I agree with you that it, it definitely is not teaching coding in the same sense that you and I learn coding. So we just watched that movie. What's the name of that movie? Um, uh, it has to do with the space program. What is it the African American ladies in the space program? Uh, oh, that's a recent movie. Yes, the, the movie that just came out. Uh, uh, yeah, I, can't, I want to see it and I can't remember the name of it. Uh, anyway, yeah, Scott is going to come up with a name. But in that pro, in that hidden figures, hidden figures, right? And so that movie deals with African American women in the space program and their role in it. But one of the things that one of them does is she learns Fortran from a book. Oh, Fortran. Good right. Fortran, like, I remember, yeah. Right? Like, yeah. when I saw her take out the book, I was like, oh, she's going to learn Fortran. Because I had to learn Fortran when I was when I was first yeah. learning to code. And uh, she learned it from a book, and then she used um, punch cards to program the computer. Uh-huh. Right? Fortran, as, it's, as it is, and as, as much as I remember of it, is not... Like, a lot of programming in this kind of toy has become very much command-based. Mm-hmm. Like, if I want her to move her head, there's move head command, right? Fortran didn't work that way. Of course not, yeah. There weren't commands in that sort of way. Like, there were there were certain things you had to type to do it. I, I remember as a little kid, my dad trying to teach me some of this, and I was enough that I could type it and put it in. So I feel like one of the things that's happened and why you feel the way you feel is because as technology has advanced we actually are learning less of it, less of it, even though these kids are learning it earlier than we might have learned it. They're not learning as much as we learned. Yeah, of the actual right. programming required to make it function. Exactly. Yeah. My question to that is, do they need to? Well, well while somebody else is doing it for you, I guess you don't, but that doesn't really make you programmer i guess do they need to well somebody's gonna have to at some point pick it up and do it again and program the toys of the future or the computers of the future yeah when you get older right so what you're saying is this is oh, well, you're not really saying this what this really is is i think to pique their interest now while they're young um the part that i struggle with is when i was young nobody needed to pique my interest well, i guess <laughs> maybe my, my parents were doing that maybe i don't know yeah but I just wanted to learn it so that I could do this thing. 
mm-hmm. and maybe it goes back to like kids are growing up with these computers and these devices that just take it for granted that they work. So you need to give them something to show them this is how that works. And if you learn this, and you can make things work even better. Yeah, I don't even think that's what they're doing. This is, I think it's a lot of it, a lot of these things are just basically so the parent can say, look, my kid is programming. Mm-hmm. And even though they're not doing it, like you guys explained it, I think it's, it's more of a, it's more a toy for the, for the parent's ego than for, uh-huh, yeah. than for the, the kid. Maybe. But yeah, but I also think that there is this like complete different view of coding now than it was before. You know, like the minute that you you trend, you make something a trend. I I personally believe it loses its value. Hmm. Or you make it, or you mainstream it, and coding has become that. Like, you know, Code Pink. There's all of these organizations that are like, oh, let's teach women how to code. Women code. Let's teach uh, girls how to code. And I think those are great. I think they're they're good, especially when the access to to that type of education or yeah or ability is not available for those communities it works mm-hmm. but when that's not the case and there are people who have access to it and they're just joining this because it's trendy or it makes them cool or they can wear glasses without uh, glass inside them <laughs> just to look just the frames, nerdy just, yeah just the frames of glasses mm-hmm. just to look <laughs> just to look trendy mm-hmm. then you're losing the whole process well I mean I think you and I talked about this earlier in the week uh, just, just as we're talking about this is that the nerd culture has sort of become mainstream right mm-hmm. yeah you know, so this idea of like oh I'm gonna learn to code now is sort of this part of this it's definitely become pop culture um, that being said, though, I don't know that there's anything wrong with a child learning to code early. I just think maybe there's better ways of doing it than this. I actually just saw, if you whoever wants to watch the last episode of Shark Tank, there was a product there. It, it's, again, it's talking about trends, right? Everything's become a subscription box as well. So there was a company there that was selling a subscription box that would teach you how to code, teach a child how to code. So huh. it was something similar. So there's clearly a market for these toys. Um, I have a problem with Disney doing it because I already feel like Disney does enough with, you know, their movies are basically like, basically like billboards for morality that I don't need them teaching my child. Well, yes. I have a child, but you get what I'm saying. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and now they're using their, their princesses as a way to teach somebody how to code. I, you know, I already don't like the princess part of it. Um, Yeah, I'm with you. I'm not a fan of Disney anything. And I particularly don't like the Disney formula. And, uh, you know, anytime Disney comes out with a a movie, uh, it has to have at least 12 to 13 songs so it can have a soundtrack it can sell you separately. And I find that so annoying. I mean, one or two songs, fine. I can understand that. But exactly 12 and 13 so so they can sell you a soundtrack? Yeah, it drives me nuts. And what is uh, Dance Code Bell? Is $120? $120 for a doll that you program to do what? Mm. Probably say some stuff. Yeah, so I don't know. Yeah. Um, so, I don't know. I put it on here because it's clearly becoming something that's... That when I saw the people at Shark Tank having this box and then I saw this store, I'm like, okay, yeah. well, this is something that's becoming a thing. 
and we should talk about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know what, mm-hmm. Jose? How is this different than, let's say, toys when you and I grew up that, let's say it was a dog instead of a car, mm-hmm. and let's say it was, you know, go forward, turn left, turn right, back up, and those were just buttons. They were just buttons you pressed to do that. Mm-hmm. This does not seem like it's any different than that except that it's digitized. Right, and that is exactly what it is. It's just, it's typed out commands that you're putting on an app rather than you're, you know, pushing Just pushing a button, Mm yeah. Right. Um, I remember when I was little, I had to speak and spell. You know, I think that had more coding in it than this does. Yeah. You think about it. (laughs) You had to code that? Well, I mean, you would, you put in different cassettes and you would type in things and it would ask you a question. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, Yeah. so... I mean, what were those little like keychain dog or pets? There was things? no coding to that. Though. that no? was, you were just pushing buttons to feed it. Or, <laughs> I forget what they were called, but yeah. Was like Gochi or Yochi or something? Yeah, something like Yoki, Yoshi, <laughs> something along those lines. I wanted one of those so bad. Yeah, I oh. think I still have one in Florida. Maybe when we go, we can get it for you. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> Take it out of that shoebox. Yeah. My, last time I was there, my parents were like, "Oh, you have a bunch of boxes in the storage shed." Okay, those are old toys. <laughs> My collection of Ninja Turtles. Um, all right, <laughs> let's move on to the next section of the podcast. All right, so what's everybody working on? Uh, why don't you go first, Ray? Uh, yeah, we've been very busy. As a matter of fact, uh, I have been so busy with my spinners, I don't know if you remember that from last time, yeah. uh, that I have not had a chance to upload a YouTube video for three weeks. Oh, wow. Wow, Be- that's has long. It been, has it been three weeks? It's been three weeks because uh, I've been uh, staying late, going in early, and working on the weekends because I've had so many orders for the spinners. And uh, I actually, had, last week, I had to suspend the sales because there were, I am not even joking, I had to suspend the sales to get the last 20 out before, uh, as, as quickly as I was mailing them, I was getting more and more orders and I couldn't keep up. Uh, but in the process, it was, uh, uh, I'll keep it quick, one customer who bought it uh, said, can you make me something special, something custom? So I made him a nine-gear spinner. I don't know if you saw any of that stuff. Uh, I don't think so. So it's a it's a gear it's a spinner with nine gears in it, and they all intermesh. Wow. And it was quite a production, but I learned so much from that one that I uh, wanted to stop the sales in order to uh, re-engineer the the other spinner. And without wanting to, by suspending the sales to make it better and, and to give myself some time, uh, it created a, a vacuum that became uh, quite an interesting marketing mechanism because now they want it more than ever. <laughs> now that it's no longer for sale, they want it more than ever. Okay. So uh, people have been telling... Uh, asking me if they can prepay mm-hmm. for the next version and they haven't even seen an, what the next uh, version will be. a prototype. Yeah, they don't even know what it is and they, they want me to pay for it in advance. Yeah. It, it could be worse. It could have less gears in it. <laughs> they don't know. <laughs> they just want it. No, it's going to have at least three. It's it's a re-engineering of the, of the three-gear spinner because I learned so much from the nine-gear mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. that I'm going to apply those lessons to future ones. Nice. Well, I mean, I, honestly, I mean, I think you and I talked about this a little bit. Like, it's probably a better way because if you could take pre-orders, then you know ahead of time how many you need, and yeah. you could. It's probably better for you to make a run of them first, and then, and, and then making like five at a time or six at a time or whatever, right? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I was making the last batch was fifty. Wow. The last batch was yeah. fifty, and I had to stop the receiving orders. Because I could see I only had 20 left and I wouldn't have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. So, yeah, so I'm going to do a, a revisit that and I'm going to have four more models coming out. Nice. And um, it, it's weird. It's very well received. I never thought it would do that. It was a, nice. a fluke thing. Well, Just actually, a fluke so thing. Now that you've stopped for a little bit, I'm going to send you something because I saw a thing come through. I forget where I saw it, but I'll find it and I'll send it to you. It's also a fidgeting toy that maybe you can f- do something similar to it if you want or something. Okay. In that business. I'll send it to you. I'll, I'll talk to you about it after we've done recording. Um, just not put it out there right away. So anyway, um, what about you, Claudia? What have you been working on? <laughs> I don't know. What have I been working on? Oh, a lot of stuff. Um... Yeah, no, just you know, continuing to work in, in a lot of the policy policy stuff that I've been working on. Like I mentioned earlier, like carbon tax. Um, trying to learn a little bit more about that whole process. And uh, yeah, like, oh, well, you know, getting our maker. The maker uh, fair? You maker put fair, the so things together? Really important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Okay. It's just a lot of other other odds and ends and mm-hmm. things that I'm working on these days. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, for myself, I'm actually tomorrow, when, by the time this is up, I'm going to put up a video on my YouTube channel for, uh, I made some GoPro mounts for the new GoPro camera that I bought for myself. So I 3D printed them and then I had to add some different nuts and stuff in order for it to work properly. And, uh, you know, sort of fit how you finish something like that. So. I'll have that up on my YouTube channel, uh, so I'm working on that. I've also had an idea for a, a project that, that we might be doing a Kickstarter for. Um, so there'll be more on that later. I've been sort of running some budgets and stuff like that. So I've just been working on that kind of stuff, and and then some architecture-related sort of, uh, I want to call them studies or quick projects that I've been working on as well. So a lot of stuff in the pipes that are still in development, if you will. So, yep. Have you uh, have you thought any more about your your architecture rings? Uh, I have. I think about them all the time, and there's just so many things that come up. Like I, I haven't gotten a chance to redo the to like uh, redo the model, so I got to work on that part of it. Um, I haven't had a chance to work on any of the models really, just because having when work's been busy because we're still a person short. But also I've been coming up with this other stuff that I want to put on there. So, But I, I think that will be the next thing that I'll work on at some point, too. I'm going to be getting a... Th- well, I guess I could talk about the 3D printer. I was, gonna, I was just about to tell about you. To I was going to say, hey, I would love to... You know you know what I've been working on? I'm telling Jose, I told you so. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. That's never good. Yeah, so we should, we should at some point... We've talked about doing a Kickstarter episode. Yes. Um, so we should do that at some point. But I will say, you know, I've talked about here how, you know, there's a the 3D printer I looked, I, I ordered was through Kickstarter or whatever. Um, 
and as you know, everybody knows when you get into Kickstarter, there's no guarantee you're going to get a product. There's no guarantee you're going to get through the thing. So I think one of the things that broke for the 3D printer, the news that broke is that the company might be in some financial trouble. Um, there's still no 100% formal update about it yet but you know i am less confident that this 3d printer is coming than i used to be so i think i'm just going to order a, a different one for now to already have so i'm in the process of doing that or ordering a 3d printer so yeah as a matter of fact um my boss and i have been talking about uh, bringing a 3d printer into the shop mm-hmm. and we are we're looking at maybe a budget of a thousand dollars so i i need to kind of narrow it down on what kind of 3d printer would be good for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I'm gonna look. I'm probably gonna spend a little bit less than well, probably about half as much as that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm gonna be looking through them, and I'm trying to figure out if I wanna do one that I build myself or or how it goes, you know. But you know, um, if anybody out there, if anybody out there has some recommendations for for both for either of us, that'd be great. Yep. You know, send it our way. So. Mm-hmm. No Kickstarters. No Kickstarters. <laughs> there's, yeah, there's, yeah, there's going to be a, how do you say, a, um, a freeze on Kickstarters in this household for a little bit, maybe? Yeah, maybe. We'll see, <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Unless it's ours. <laughs> yeah, unless it's ours. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we need to talk about that because I'd be interested in seeing what we could do. Yeah, yeah we'll definitely talk about it because uh, maybe you, got, you can help us with it as well. Um, so, yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Well, that's uh, really everything for this week. Next week, I think we're going to, if you liked the first half of our of our review of the White Rabbit Project, the plan is for next next week to talk about the second half of the, of the episodes. Claudia's going to try and push through. Mm-hmm. As, and uh, so hopefully next week we'll be talking about the White Rabbit Project. Um, and then one of the things we've, we've discussed as well is that we might start doing... Uh, you know, we, we're famous for our own news episodes like we just did today. Um, and uh, we talk about different topics, but I think we're going to try and do another sort of recurring episode where each one of us takes a turn doing a report on a specific subject. Mm-hmm. So we'll see how that works. That might be the week after that one of us will go first, and we'll go from there. Yeah, uh, once we slow down, I think, and the weather gets nicer, maybe we'll do a project too. Yes, yeah, we've got a project. We got an idea for a project yeah. as well. Or well, maybe we do it for the November for for Nova, for Maker Maker Nova. Maybe, yeah. Okay. All right, cool. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, why don't we tell everybody where they can find more about us? Ray, why don't you go first? Uh, you could find me at uh, my YouTube channel, Ray Pena. Um, you, if you type in my name, you'll, you'll be the first one that comes up typically. Um, and, uh, our, my Facebook page where, uh, we talk about making homemade lathes. It's called what else? The homemade lathe, uh, group. Uh, we've had a lot of new members. I think there's a spike. There was 200, uh, people that joined last week. Uh, nice. Yeah. I'm not sure if you noticed that it was, it was uh, yeah. Quite a surprise. I wasn't expecting mm-hmm. that kind of spike, and it was uh, mostly South America, South Central America. Very cool. That's yeah. Very cool. Yeah, I, I and haven't gotten a chance to look at the patients. That last time I did, I posted that that glass late that I had seen. Yeah. Ah. Oh yeah, yeah, I saw that. Yeah. And then of course, um, if you're interested in any of my spinners, I've got realgearspinners.com. 
and I will be coming out with the uh, the revisions in probably in a week or two. Cool. Cool. Yeah. So, and we have links to all of that on the description. Claudia, what about you? Uh, you can find me at uh, City Ecologist on Twitter, uh, also on Facebook, and uh, just my name, Claudia Berrigan. Twitter, uh, DC Berrigan. And yeah. And uh, you can find me at City Aperture on pretty much every social media. And uh, yeah, Facebook, Twitter, what it might be. So cool. Thanks everybody for listening. We'll be back next week. All right. All right. See you next time. Bye bye.